0: No series on biography would be complete without a conversation about fictional biography. It's a very popular genre, sometimes seen as more accessible. Who better to talk to than award-winning novelist Colm Tabine, who convincingly inhabited the skin of Henry James in The Master and now does a similar thing with German Nobel laureate Thomas Mann in The Magician. Mann was born into a prosperous bourgeois German family in 1875. He's the author of several classics including Buddenbrooks, Dr. Faustus, Death in Venice, and The Magic Mountain. He died in Switzerland in 1955, having fathered six very eccentric children who feature strongly into Beane's novel, together with Mann's clever all-seeing wife Katya as Exile's man and his wife travelled to France and America, always cushioned by his considerable wealth. I spoke to Colum Tobin at this year's Adelaide Writers' Week via Zoom, and, as always at these outdoor events, you will hear quite a lot of noise, in this case from a helicopter and some sirens last time you and I spoke in Sydney about The Master. The Master is your book about Henry James and it opens with Henry James's disastrous first night of his play. And we talked about Henry James's perception of celebrity and success. And I think that this theme comes up again now with Thomas Mann, because he had a very strong sense of his own fame. In The Magician, he's very much the great man. When he travels, he's received as such. He's recognised. There's deference and there's money. So can you talk a little bit about fame and celebrity in relation to Thomas Mann?
1: He published his first novel, Buddenbrooks, when he was 26, in 1901. And the book brought him a sort of instant fame, certainly in Germany, and then a world fame because the book became, it was translated into every language. It made him into a sort of young writer that people paid attention to. So when he was in Munich and when he put his eye on Katia Pringsheim from a very rich, assimilated Jewish family, younger than he was, one of the first women to study science in a German university, the Pringsheims really wanted him. He was a figure to be admired. He never looked back uh, with, with fame. I mean, in other words, for all his life, he was a famous writer in America. Unlike his brother, Heinrich, also a writer, Thomas Mann became famous in America. His books were really read all over the world. And uh, of course, the income from his books in America was really enormous, especially in the 30s and 40s. And not just fame, but a sort of, um, he represented something. He represented at a certain point, a sort of scholarly Germanness. But I think later on, he represented a sort of opposition to Hitler. But when the diaries came out, really, I mean, when I read him first, and I think I, a lot of people feel the same, that, but when you read those big books that seem so finished and so filled with knowledge, so certain of themselves, you presume that the author must have been like this too, that he wrote from a sort of entitlement, a sense of power, a sense of ease in the world. And you realise from the diaries that this simply wasn't true, that there were great areas of unease, uncertainty, and lack of entitlement in his inner life. He kept his inner life very, very private. It was his outer life, the world saw. And my novel is, in a way, an attempt to dramatize the big gap between the two.
0: Curious, Colin, about what you just said, because yes, Buddenbrooks made him a sort of an instant star at the age of 26. But when I talk to people now, people say, oh, can't get through the books, impenetrable really difficult. He's one of those writers that people regard as a challenge, I would say, possibly on the same parallel as Proust. So I'm wondering, how did he become such an important man of letters and find a readership back then that allowed for the comfortable lifestyle that he then was able to enjoy as a best-selling author? I mean, are we now today just not up to the task of reading Thomas Mann? Was there a bigger, more educated readership for him back then?
1: I think Buddenbrooks has always been, for anyone who opens it, an extremely readable, blockbuster, 19th-century novel, which is a story of a family. I think it's a much better book, say, than John Goldsworthy's, The Forsyth Saga. It has a sense of the inner lives of the characters and the sort of movement of history. But I think for anyone, any reader who's interested in fiction, Buddenbrooks is really a wonderful book. And it wasn't merely that people were impressed by it when it appeared. People loved it, and people still love it who read it. Yes, you're absolutely right, however, that the name Thomas Mann is now associated with a sort of Germanic heaviness, with a sort of obscurity, and that the books seem like, compared to, say, the novels of Charles Dickens, say, that the novels seem a chore. Certainly, if you look at the sales figures in the United States now, they're not high. His reputation has remained high, but it isn't as though what Henry James called the great flat foot of the public has sort of followed him into the 21st century. I think a great marketing coup took place in America where the Knopf's decided that he was the writer they could market in America and that every civilized household would have to have copies of his books, including the Joseph novels. Dr. Fazis was a bestseller in America, so they made the name synonymous with a sort of aspiration, which is really one of the ways high culture gets sold in the world. You know, if, you, if you're not reading Ulysses, you're not going to get a date you know, that says if you're not watching a Bergman film, no one will believe you when you, you know, that that we always have those sort of senses if you're not listening to, you know, difficult music. So that high culture always comes with a sort of a lot of marketing attached to it. And of course, as in the case of Proust, who you also mentioned, Proust remains immensely rewarding as a novelist. I mean, it's, the more attention you pay, the more you get. It's the same with a novel like Dr Faustus, which is Thomas Mann's really, I mean, big, last, serious novel. I mean, he wrote Felix Krull, a great comic novel after that, but he remains a rewarding writer and and also at certain times at certain novels that remain sort of heavy-handed.
0: So now, after the helicopter, we've got the sirens. (laughs) Nothing but fun here and challenges. You read and reviewed three biographies of Thomas Mann in 1995 and that led directly to the idea for this novel and I read your your review in the London Review of Books and you said that the three biographies were dull and worthy uh, and that also they they expressed a kind of desire the three of them for man to be a better person to an almost comic degree so can you talk about how Reading and reviewing those three books made you want to write this novel in reply or in response?
1: Oh, well, it wasn't really. Uh, uh, the, the, yes, the, the, I think two of the three books where there was a, certainly a heavy hand and a feeling somehow that they, the authors grew to dislike this figure. And there's a moment where Thomas Mann is going to America and, and he really is fleeing the Nazis. And it's just, it's just you know, the boat book, the book is absolutely crowded and, and there is a sense of it's ominous. And what does man do? He, he, he finds a place every day and he just writes. And one of the biographers thinks this is an example of its cold, cold heart. And I don't. I think it's an example of what you would do if you were a writer under the circus. Just bury yourself in work just so you don't have to think about the chaos going on all around you. I, I mean, I'm sorry that we have to apologize for it, the fact that he worked, that he, that he continued writing on, under these pressures. I, I, I found the, the attempt to do psychology on him, the attempt to judge him, the attempt to sort of, you know, try and try and work for the reader to show really what a f- cold fish he was. I found that very unsatisfying and um, it, it didn't um, it didn't make me feel that I was getting any further with him. The Anthony Helibut, of the three books, the Anthony Helibut book called Eros and Literature is, I think, the best of the three. And there were other books that came later, such as Evelyn Durer's book on Heinrich Mann and his wife, Nellie. That's a, that's a very good book. And, and it, it is as though she's using a real intelligence to sort of study how these people uh, from the available facts. And there are other books, too, a biography of Klaus Mann and the biography of Klaus and Erica Mann that I also wrote about. So, but I did find reading, you see, those three biographies took up the available information from the diaries. So suddenly we had a whole new way of looking at man, which was that um, it wasn't merely the buttoned up figure I mentioned at the beginning. It was a, a man who's, say, whose sexual, whose uh, who's erotic life was secret and was ho- homosexual. And yet he had six children and was married to a very clever and tolerant and interesting woman. So it, 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 it is a very complex story, this story. Also, his political life, that, that, that in the First World War, he was a German patriot. He wanted bloodshed. He wanted German victory. He was fired up with the sort of Prussianness, ness And then that, that that sort of faded. And he was also a monarchist. This faded in the 1920s. And then he became a... Um, I, I suppose, a great Democrat and an implacable enemy of Hitler. So that uh, really, there it is an interesting story because this is a complex figure during a very difficult time. And a man who also, I think, in certain ways might have been just happier writing his novels and telling his stories without having to be involved in, you know, if there had been no wars, he might have been an actual, you know, it, it, isn't, as though, it isn't as though he wanted these challenges. These challenges came to him.
0: Absolutely. And, um,
1: But I but I did find the biographies I found them (laughs) plodding, just plotting, just plodding.
0: What you didn't find plodding, I mean, we'll come back to his diaries in a moment perhaps, but but for me, I have to say that Katya, his wife, is the sort of sparkling centre of the book. She's dry, she's droll, she's all-knowing, she's all-seeing, she's, she's just an absolutely fizzing character on the page. Now, she also wrote memoirs, which I think were published when she was in her 90s. Can you, can you talk about those? Because that seems to have also yielded some important material for you.
1: Yes, um, in her 90s, when Cathy was in her 90s, her son Michael convinced her to, to go on tape. So she dictated these memoirs, which is a book called Unwritten Memories. And that book shows her to be ironic, tolerant and good-humoured and clever and that she noticed things. And, and what I got interested in was the fact that there are, I suppose, two cliches. One would be that she was a brilliant young woman. And she devoted her life then to domestic space, to having children, to looking after her husband. And that must have been unsatisfying. Well, it wasn't. And the other one being that she was married to a homosexual. And that must have been deeply frustrating and made them both very unhappy. Well, it didn't. So what I become interested in then was how come it didn't? How come she wasn't? I mean, what was it like for her? in all in those domestic spaces and what was it like for her to be married to this man and so the novel the magician is more than anything else a portrait of a marriage mm. it's, it's an attempt to enter into those complex spaces between two people where she keeps the show on the road she's politically i think more astute than he is she's constantly clever my, my idea was that if she comes into a room and says something it doesn't have to be funny but it has to be smart that she's always ahead of him in that way and that he's often silent and that she's usually you know, sensible. So that was the idea that in this portrait of a marriage, I was to avoid these easy versions of that story that outsiders might think are true, but I thought weren't true, but I wasn't sure in what way they weren't true. In other words, as each day happened, as each time they went into exile or each country they went into, things were different between them. And there was a time later on when she did find the use of her grandson as a character in one of his books to be sort of um, less than edifying. And she was certainly not very, very unhappy with that. But, um, you know, the, one of the fun, one of the really amazing moments in, the, in the, her, her, her book is when she says, I was in, I was in Venice with Tommy in 1911. And Tommy is her husband, Thomas Mann, and uh, she's with Thomas and Heinrich. And um, they were staying in that hotel, the Grand Hotel de Ban on, on, on the Lido. And yes, Tommy did start looking at this boy on the beach, this beautiful boy. She's absolutely no trouble with that. Yes, that is what happened. Mm. And she said, well, he didn't follow him in the streets. That he didn't do. But, I mean, she's absolutely clear that... Um, Death in Venice is not a, you know, it, it isn't a novel about some sort of symbolic idea of beauty or the decay of Europe or something. It's actually based on a trip they made and then um, just at the time of Mahler's death, which meant that Mahler's face is described, is, is given to the author, Aschenbach von Aschenbach, in the in the story. But it's fascinating just, just to watch her being so casual about it. it. It wasn't a big deal. Her grandmother had been the most famous feminist. In Germany, and for them in in this time, I mean the early 1900s, everyone's sexuality was was open to suggestion. It wasn't. I mean, I mean the, these were bohemian people, seriously well read, and and involved in constant discussion about things which had hitherto been forbidden. And so she was a very modern person. And as, as, as we have to imagine that, you know, G- Germany before the First World War was filled with people who were highly modern in, in the same way as we get figures like Virginia Woolf and her friends in London, that we get a similar world in Munich, but a, perhaps even in Munich even more advanced.
0: Yes, I mean, it's interesting that you, you don't mention there that the boy in question that they observe in Venice is 13 years old. He's wearing, I think uh, Katya says in her diaries, uh, the sailor suit, the sailor suit that we associate with the Visconti movie, of course. She's so shrewd and so so observant of her husband that... and, And also, I would have to say, Colin, she is an enabler, isn't she? In that when she sees that her husband's eye fixes on a waiter, she arranges for him to have a private moment with that waiter because... She knows that that will give him pleasure, not in an explicit sexual encounter, but just some private time together.
1: Yeah, he, yeah, he's 75 at this point, and they're in Switzerland, and he really likes this sort of fleshy Bavarian waiter. And it cheers him up immensely. He's, 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 he's pretty down, he's pretty depressed. And Erica, his daughter, and Katia notice that he's much cheered up by the presence of this waiter. And... Um, but I mean, you really have to imagine this. I mean, it's it's beyond. I mean, I don't know if it's maybe in Australia, but in certainly in Ireland or America or England, it would be very strange that the wife and the daughter deciding to procure for him. I mean, it's not it's not as though he's going to have sex with the waiter or do anything that will in any way compromise him. He merely likes him and wants to be served by him and wants to look at him and wants to see his smile. So it is sexual and it is open. And the two women, the daughter and the wife, arrange for him to have further meetings, thus to, you know, rid him of his depression, to get him to be cheered up. I mean, I don't think it would happen now. I think that they would now tell him to just go and get a life. But, um, well, this is 1950
0: Mm. and
1: he's 75 and this is what they do for him. So, I mean, it is this. look, this is a really unusual story. I mean, this is what fascinated me in that there are times when I cannot really make sense of it. I can show the image. I can show what's going on. But it isn't as though I can find even a pattern for it. So, so it is It is one of those great marriages that doesn't seem to be based on mutual sexual attraction. But, but somehow or other, it works for both of them. And it is almost unimaginable, his life without her. Certainly, she could have had a marvelous life with anybody. She would thrive anywhere. But he was the one was um I think much more vulnerable and you know his sexuality was always going to be a problem for him mm. and um, finding some in a way finding someone who would put up with him <laughs> was always going to be trouble and that's what she did she yes. put up with him.
0: she did um, I'm curious Colm you know following on from the brilliant way that you inhabit Henry James's mind in The Master, it it felt like you really got inside Henry James's head. Were you trying to do the same thing with Thomas Mann and did you find him harder to inhabit or was that not the challenge that you set yourself?
1: Yes, he's much harder. There, There are times when it feels to me that he's a ghost in the room, that in his own life he was ghostly. It seems to me that from the early loss in Lubeck, you know, they were famous people in Lübeck, which is a small city in the north of Germany beside Hamburg. They, they had been traders there for three or four generations. They, they owned ships, they owned warehouses, and his father was a senator. So when, when he would, as a small boy, walk out, out onto the street, everybody would have known who he was. Mm. And that was taken from him when he was about, you know, 14, 15. His father died and in the will said that the, that the entire business was to be wound up the end of it. Thomas Mann's mother had been born in Brazil, but there was a great sort of trading route between Brazil and Lübeck, because Lübeck makes a marzipan in Germany. So um, he went to Munich where he was nobody, where nobody recognized him on the street, and where he had no deep roots. And I think that was the beginning of something in him that withdrew, that withheld, that went silent, became ghostly. And part of the reason why I can work with this marriage is that Katia provides all the substance and he provides all the shadow. Yeah. And that the, the substance of his life was when he was alone in his study with words and sentences, writing them. That was where he was somebody. But it seems to me that when he went anywhere else, he was doing an imitation of himself. Or he was, it was attempting to advertise himself, in other words, as a public speaker, as a figure who was always being decorated. And, um, he, you know, he, he did a lot of readings and public speeches. And he, he certainly seemed to enjoy that business of having, having being in the spotlight. Mm. But there was always a sense that he was posing or that he was trying out something. With James, his solitude became substantial. The, the demons or the memories or the desires that followed him meant something to him. He knew what they were. With with man, it, 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 it is as though all of this is not there in him, that he, that his that his private life was entirely with the words on the page. So you're dealing o- often there's a moment where he falls in love, again, you know, quite unsuitably, with a 17-year-old boy called Klaus Hauser. And Klaus Hauser comes to Munich to stay with the man, which again is a high, 19, 1927 is a highly unusual thing. I have to really work with this. And so there's a there's a brother called Thomas Mann has a son called Klaus. He's a brother-in-law called Klaus, and now he has this young man called Klaus. And there's the dinner for all three, and the other members of the family are there, including Thomas Mann's wife. Mann at the dinner notices that all of them are talking to each other. All of them are busy. All of them are preoccupied. All of them are there in the room, and he's not there. It is as though if he stood up and walked away, only Klaus Hauser's eyes would follow him, and. Uh, that only slightly others wouldn't even notice his absence as they don't notice his presence. So I became interested in that idea of almost not exactly a man without qualities, but one of those men who are able to in a way disappear in a room full of people or even within their own families or become unknowable. People could say about them later, I was never sure what he was thinking. You know, he didn't speak much. You know, he could be very cold as a father. And, you know, that's that he could be very distant as a friend. He didn't, by the way, have any close friends uh, in his life. He, he didn't do that sort of peer group friendship. And he loved his domestic space. And Cathy had kept it in order for him. But it, it, the difference between him and Henry James is that with Henry James, I can see his uh, emotional life as complete, as one in which... I can see what's going into his mind and out of his mind, I mean, partly his letters and also his work. But with Man, it's a much more distant, it, it's a much more, I think, a much more 20th century story. It is as though someone like Robert Musil, who wrote The Man Without Qualities, could write uh, that this idea, or T.S. Eliot, that, you know, a hollow man. A
0: hollow so
1: man. yes, it's a very different story. It's not as though I found the same story again and told it a second time. No, This is absolutely a mu- not. much more challenging story.
0: Children, They had six children, he and Katya, but he professed to only love two of them, Erica and Elizabeth, and apparently treated the others, considered them as sort of mildly irritating. And then mm-hmm. when you mentioned that Klaus Heuser incident of being attracted to this 17-year-old boy, I thought you were going to tell the story about how he, he wrote to his son, who was very attractive as well in his own right, and he said... He asked his son, who had met Klaus at this dinner possibly that you're referring to, to voluntarily withdraw and not invade my circle. I am already old and famous, and why should you be the only ones who constantly sin? The secret and almost silent adventures in life are the finest. So that suggests direct competition between father and son, and that's pretty weird.
1: Yes, it didn't happen much. I mean, that that, that letter is really unusual in, in that he is breaking out of his own skin by actually trying to talk to his children directly about the fact that they're all looking for sex with with, with attractive people, and for once he has found someone and could they back <laughs> off? Um, but yes, it, it gives an, it gives an example of just how strange this household was. But his two eldest children, Klaus and Erica did represent, you know, they, they they did, because their sexuality was so open, because they really, anything they said, if they had a thought, then they spoke it. They were out there. They wanted to tour the world. They, they wanted to drink the cup, you know, and uh, their father was at home and they would come home looking for money. But I mean, they did sort of almost shame him at times into, you know, how isolated he was and how silent he was and how noisy they were. So it's good for the novel in the sense that I could, every time I bring them home, I can have them you know, really behave outrageously while the father watches. And of course, he's fascinated by outrageous behavior, but he himself will never join. So that letter is just one way of trying to be with them for a change, because normally he's not. It's not as though there's a large correspondence like that, that that letter is on its own.
0: Now, I'm really curious about the the things that you allow yourself to do in a in a biographical novel we're all very familiar with the genre and obviously it's great popular appeal we only have to look to writers like yourself and hilary mantel Obviously, most of the dialogue is invented, but when it comes to events and when it comes to people, what do you allow yourself to do and what do you not give yourself permission to do with a big, significant life, which is so well documented, not only by man, but by his wife, by his children and by the whole kind of man industry in publishing terms of books about this family?
1: Normally, as a novelist, you can say that you have all the rights and very few of the responsibilities. Your responsibility is to create an illusion for the reader, that the reader will enter into this world and follow the illusion and live within the illusion. That is your responsibility. The rest, you have rights. In in this case, that's that's just not true. And, And you could try and say it and argue it, but you would never win that argument. No matter what you do, there is an ethics involved in this. And the ethics, no matter what you do as well, has gray and fuzzy areas that, that you could you really couldn't be sure about. I think the first thing is that if, you, if I say that he was in Munich at a certain time, then he, that, then he was.
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: I say that he went, that he was not in, in Germany in 1933 and he did not go back into Germany, that has to be correct. If I say he, where he went next, that has to be correct. But there are other moments. The one moment but I'll give you an example of. I see him in Munich. He he gets his own apartment and he's a, you know, he's a young writer and he's having a certain success. He gets his own apartment. His mother is living away. So suddenly he's on his own in the city. Now, anyone thinking about that, a young man filled with homosexual desire is in Munich on his own with his own apartment. It's not possible that something didn't happen once Now, he wouldn't have written that in his diary. He wrote in his diary for about those years about the unrequited loves he had. I'm talking about the single business of just walking home one night, blocking eyes with someone and just something occurring. Mm. I put that into the book because it's an important moment for him. It's somebody who he really doesn't like. And he ends up having sex with him and ends up feeling rotten afterwards. And he ends up feeling, actually, this could be my life. I could go from city to city having this sort of, deeply unsatisfactory sex. I'm going to propose marriage to Katia Pringsheim. That's going to be the spur. You know, I was trying to get a motive for him to, like he liked her, he was interested in her, he saw what could happen between him and her. But the moment where he decides, actually, I'm going to do this, even though friends of his will know it's wrong. And obviously this is this is, this is troublesome. Um, I went with the book to Germany and I was on a stage, I was on a stage um, at the Frankfurt Book Fair very sparsely attended, but it was being filmed. And I got interviewed by a young journalist from the Frankfurt Book Fair who, you know, was very polite up to a certain moment and then just turned to me and said, uh, so how do you feel about queering Thomas Mann? And uh, I had to say, well, I didn't write his diaries. I didn't write it in Venice. You know, if, if you can forgive me, I actually, you know, these were not my my work. You know? And, I was, and I, was, I was saying I didn't do this. But I think for Germans, the idea... Of, that he was less than a great man that he was a dishonest man mm. which he certainly was and i'm not judging that I'm, I'm fascinated by dishonesty i would find it very difficult to write a novel about an honest man whatever that would be but that scene no matter what i do i made up that scene it's not in a diary it has no source i'm just imagining what that year in his life two years in munich would have been like i'm giving him that scene as i might have given him attending an opera or as as i might have given him You know, an encounter he had. But the ethics, I mean, in other words, I I feel this is an important part of the story. It's impossible for me that he never had sex. I just don't believe that he was... Too many hotel rooms, hotels filled with waiters, you know, train journeys. There were too many chances. And, you know, things he he didn't note down in his diary doesn't mean he wrote everything down. But in general, if I'm saying something, it's true. I mean, in other words, where he was who was with him, what year the children were born, what year his father died, when he went to America, where he lived in America. All of those things are true. And they're not just outlined, they're the whole structure of the book and the structure of the life. Um, those things are based on fact. But yeah, the, the, the book is, depends on its dialogue. It depends on these noisy encounters between him and his children, him and his wife, and with a lot of interruption, with a lot of different sort of opinions being expressed. And the dialogue there, very deliberately, is not an attempt to imagine how Germans spoke a century ago. I think you would lose the reader very quickly. And um, so what I was doing was I found a sort of tone from the 1920s, uh, from literature of the 1920s, of being snappy. Of dialogue, a lot of interruption, a lot of just short, brisk interventions in the dialogue. It's not as though they ever listen to each other this family. They don't listen to each other. And so, all those encounters in dialogue, I think perhaps even without exception, are invented. That in other words, I'm still involved no matter what I do in the initial day job, which is I'm a novelist. And my job, as I said, is to create illusion, is to try and entice the reader into a world in which the illusion is created that you are in Thomas Mann's mind as he's facing out into his day, facing the world. And you're noticing what he notices and you're remembering what he remembers and you're feeling what he feels. And, and, and that's the effort to do is not, is to, is to bring you in and hold you as much as I can in that world.
0: In doing that, which you do so remarkably and so vividly, partly through this sparkling dialogue, which has all sorts of witty repartee and banter between all these competing, furious intellects and sort of show-offs, because they are the kids. The six children are very sort of flamboyant, as you say. There is also a sense very much of the homes and the interiors in which the mans live as they move from country to country. And you were able to visit the house in California where Thomas Mann lived in exile, and you also were able to visit his original house, I think, in Lubeck. Um, You're speaking to us from California today. I'm just wondering whether you could talk to us a little bit about the Mann houses and how important those interiors were in giving you material.
1: They were absolutely essential. I got a lot of emotion from them. Thomas Mann, in 1942, he built a house on Pacific Palisades in California. It's still there. It's owned now by the German government. When I started work on the book, which was 2005, and I was I was 15 years of just building up the images. The woman who owned the house didn't want anyone more to come. She was fed up with TV crews and stray journalists coming. But she relented that week. I don't know why, and she let me in. She bought the house from the man's She was in her 80s. She bought it when she was in her 30s, and just seeing. Example, how private his study was away from the rest of the house. He had his own, what we all want, he had his own staircase from just outside his study, going up to his own bedroom. The views were miraculous of the Santa Catalina Island, the Pacific Ocean, the Sierra on the other side, beautiful gardens, and this wonderful open California space that the man made for themselves. They didn't attempt to replicate Bavaria. This is this is beautiful mid-century California architecture. I imagined them there. And the same thing, I think, but more than anything, the house that really got me going was the house in Brazil where Thomas Mann's mother was born, which is right on the water in an inlet in a place called Parachi, in between Rio and Sao Paulo. The house is so close to the water and the water is so calm that, of course, the stars at night in, you know, with the clear sky would light up, you'd be able to read at night by starlight. And of course, you can just imagine this girl, she was taken from Brazil to Lubeck. Um, her father was German, her mother was what we might call Brazilian, meaning she was of mixed race. She was taken to Lubeck in the north of Germany, I think when she was about seven or eight, meaning she saw an overcast sky for the first time. Mm-hmm. She saw a sky see the stars. And so that that idea of he, that that half of his, you know, his mother had come from this from the Lubeck's viewpoint, exotic place. And that she had been displaced in this way, that he was later to be displaced so many times. That really got me going. That has got me going. And yes, Lubeck itself, even though it was so heavily bombed in the war, there, there's enough of it that you can get a sense of it, it, its intimacy, of, of what a small city it is, and how much he would have he would have been, the man would have stood out in the place. And the, the uh, what a great Protestant city it is, with, with its great churches, and how how much you know. Munich, which is a, you know, it, where well, it's a cosmopolitan city, but it's also a Catholic city, how much it would have been different. So, yes, yeah, yeah, seeing the houses um, and there were other houses as well, including the house he rented in Princeton. I just kept wanting to get into the houses and the houses. It, it isn't as though I, I was using, it wasn't the information I was getting where the rooms were, although that was useful. I was getting an emotion. I was getting, I, I was imagining him moving from one space into another. I was seeing the old ghost come into substantial space and that gave me just impetus to work and helped me.
0: So one of my favorite parts of the book column is the part in France when he goes to a small coastal village called Sanari, which has become a sort of a gathering place for many of the sort of intellectuals from Austria and Germany. And there are these wonderful sort of factions that are sort of fermenting and stewing at different sort of cafe tables. And so he doesn't particularly get on with the communists or with Brecht. And you paint this really rather funny um, scene in this village. So, could you just talk a little bit about the Sanari episode in the man um, life as an exile? Yeah.
1: I mean, this will be replicated in California where the German exiles bring with them an, an ability to have feuds with each other over the smallest matters, but sometimes over the largest matters, which is that some of these people are communists. There's a communist table and there's a Jewish table. And um, there are various other tables you know, at cafes where when Thomas Mann, who, of course, always had money and his wife was rich, but his books sold. And so it wasn't as though he was down on his luck financially, but he was also politically in the center. And it was known that he had a friend among the Nazis, Ernest Bertram, who had worked with him on the, his book that he wrote in the First World War. So he was being watched. And his, in a way, his brother was not because his brother was a much more open left wing figure. And so he would come with with these very stiff manners and the young communists, the people who had, you know, just, just thought he was ridiculous. And these books were bourgeois ridiculous. And of course, Brecht, you know, who was a bit older, just hated him anyway, always hated him and saw himself very much in opposition to man. That in other words, man's high bourgeois tone was something that really Brecht wanted to get rid of. Of course, man wasn't Jewish. His wife was Jewish, but she she had been from an assimilated family. So she was never near a synagogue. So that no matter where he went, he wasn't welcome. (laughs) But of course, in the end, um, it really offends him because one of the the left wing figures, uh, a poet called Ernst Toller, comes to him to say, I have a friend who's been taken in by the Nazis and he's in dreadful danger and, and they're torturing him. Is there anything you can do? Mm. And for a moment, I'm wondering, what do you mean? It means that the man might have some influence still. I mean, this is what 1935 with the old with 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 the regime. And man is appalled that they would think this. But of course, he realizes they're desperate. Mm. And then he finds out later that you know this this man um, was one of the first real victims of the Nazis. He was he, he was arrested very quickly, and they got power. And he was tortured in the most savage and brutal ways and he died. And, you know, a, a young man comes to man's house and I want you to know what happened to this particular figure who was, who, who, was, who was a writer, who came from Lubeck, who was Jewish. You need to know. And this exact same thing will happen later when a young Jewish man will come to the house in, in California to tell him just in the, just before it's, you know, before it's, before it's known worldwide, I want you to know, happened what is happening in Germany but more than that I want it known that you knew that I told you don't say in the future that you didn't learn this until later you know it now and so that's sort of way in which man people want people saw him as a great man someone who was connected someone who had influence and of course he was connected he did have influence but not but he didn't by 1935 any influence with the Nazis he didn't have that
0: no One of the darker aspects of man's life that is, you know, terribly, it's it's extraordinary to think of this, really, there is a prevalence of suicide in the family. Two of his sisters commit suicide, and as if that weren't tragic enough, two of his children commit suicide. Could you just talk a little bit about about those circumstances?
1: I think that, you know, we're talking about that he really loved his daughter, Elizabeth, and he really loved Erica. So, so, but his wife, it's clear in the novel, really loves her eldest son, who is Klaus, and um, we really watched Klaus's disintegration. And this, this disintegration is caused by, first of all, his drug-taking, but secondly, he's excited by life. He likes staying out late. You know, he has, after 1933, he has nowhere to go. He, he can roam various cities in Europe, but his country has gone because his language is gone. Mm. He'll always be an outsider now. In, in America, he eventually gets to join the army. But after the war, Klaus Mann is not welcome back in Germany. What happens in Germany after the war is they don't seem like good reasons to us now. But people began to feel themselves as being the victims. I mean, that they had been through great bombing of their cities. They were starving. And they didn't look back to say, well, actually, this was caused by you know, Germany or Germans. They saw themselves as victims, rightly or wrongly. And therefore, they didn't welcome people who had been in California or elsewhere during the war so class was not welcome back into Germany I mean mm. he could have lived there but not comfortably not as a leader not as someone people looked up to and not even as a writer because his novel Mephisto which is his best known book was was it was still banned in Germany after mm. the war and his um, friend his former friend who had been a Nazi actor a famous actor for the Nazis was suddenly back on stage and class watched he was in a theater when this actor Gustav grunjens was um was applauded uh, given a standing ovation, Klaus realized that Germans um, are ready to do in the dark, but they're forbidden for doing in the light, which is actually made clear that they're not sorry, actually. And um, he took this very badly, and he was still taking addicted to morphine and possibly cocaine. And In any case, he committed suicide, and, and, and this is the most... Uh, I mean, it's the saddest thing, because Thomas Mann did do so much to protect his children. He got them visas, he got them out of Europe, he got them into America for the war... And then this happens. And this, I mean, in, in the same way, the inflation in the 1920s caused Thomas Madd's sister Lula to lose all her money. Mm. You know, that she was a very respectable woman and she lost people's pensions became worthless, as did hers. And again, there's a question of morphine, but again, um, she committed suicide, as did his sister Carla, as later on after my novel ends, does his son Michael. And um I, I mean, it was one of the it was one of the curses. We sell the family.
0: It is a curse. It is a curse. got about 10 minutes left if you've got a question for column it would be lovely if you would come to the central microphone doesn't matter if you haven't read the book i'm sure you've read something else by column maybe brooklyn if you've got a question come to the microphone i'm happy to kind of keep going forever and ever frankly but Mm -hmm. you know You might want to ask a question. While someone is coming to the microphone column, I wanted to ask you this. Uh, You've got a scene in the book where a book suddenly manifests itself to Thomas Mann, almost complete. And I remember interviewing you once and you telling me that you'd got a complete idea for a novel while driving around a roundabout. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, the novel The Blackwater Lightship came to me when I was back home in Wexford had recently learned to drive and I was navigating around in a very inept way around a roundabout but I had been the previous few days I've been listening to a lot of music because there's an opera festival there with some chamber music and I'd been at music all the time whatever was being stirred up also about being back home and yeah driving around a roundabout the novel the Blackwater Lightship came to me I mean if the road had been straight I probably wouldn't have got it <laughs>
0: before talking about houses there are there are many houses in this novel and you you yourself have quite a few homes and i'm just wondering given how much you write about these homes in this novel if we were visiting your home as a one of your homes one of your five homes what now, would this, a,
1: this is this is <laughs> this is the stuff you read in the in, in, in the, in new, the yorker. new yorker
0: yes i'm afraid right. so
1: i mean uh, i mean it's i mean i don't own any of these places i mean i own the place in dublin i I mean this is i I move around a lot but you don't um, have to
0: explain the ownership of these places to us
1: us. anyway i I just i just want to deny that
0: heart all right okay but the point is that if we were to visit any of these places that you may not necessarily own but that you tend to live in from time to time what would we learn about you are you messy or tidy
1: that i'm really untidy and that um, no matter where I am, there's sort of books around. Yeah, just I suppose that, yeah, that I'm just, <laughs> that I've, yeah.
0: Okay, all right. We've, thank God for you, we've got a question from someone else. <laughs> I have read the novel and I'm really impressed by it. And I've got a different view of uh, Thomas Mann as a result. I, I'm very interested in his time in the United States. He was obviously protected. And as a result of that, he was able to protect his family. However, after the war, he wanted to leave. Could you enlighten us more about that period? Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you very much um, for reading the book. He had a heroic period as a political figure in America during the war because Roosevelt trusted him. And he began to tour America, making a speech. It was generally called the coming victory of democracy. He made it in faltering English, and he got as many as 5,000 people to come and hear him in places like Oklahoma, Ohio, Iowa. And he was speaking with great passion because he was speaking about an idea of liberty that he felt America shared with a Germany of the past that he represented and a Germany of the future that he imagined. No equivalent figure from the Japanese. There was no Japanese writer wandering around America in this way. No Italian writer. No other German writer. And it is as though he found a way of actually, you know, addressing power from a position of authority. And, you know, when we think about what happened after the war, the rebuilding of Germany, the creation of great democracy in Germany, that the blueprint for this, some of it, is in man's speeches, When the war was over, the problem was what to do. Um, Roosevelt was dead. He didn't have any friends in the, you know, his friendship was with Roosevelt. The problem was that his daughter, Erica, was always outspoken and she didn't have a position of American citizenship. And The FBI got on her case. She'd been anti-fascist too early, too early anti-fascist. And they thought she was a communist. And they began to think, of course, that other people were communists, including Thomas Mann as a communist. (laughs) His problem was that Germany was now divided. And Mm. if he was going to go back to Europe, he was going to have to consider this. And the Americans made very clear to him that the West is ours, the East is theirs. There's a war on us called the Cold War. And he said, I live in language, the German language is my language, it is not divided, there's no line between the language. This seemed to them very naive, it might seem like that to us, but emotionally he felt he wanted, he didn't want to represent one faction in the Cold War, and he went into he went into East Germany on his first visit. He may have done this to show his brother that he wasn't a poodle, that he wasn't a stooge of the Americans. But it was a, I mean, mean, it it wasn't forgiven. In other words, America became, when he returned, this is 1949, a sort of cold place for him. He was denounced in Congress. And he began to be interviewed by the FBI. And of course, the McCarthy period was beginning. Everyone was suspected of being a communist. And he really had no proper way of defending himself. So Erica had you know, really never found a home after the war in the same way as Klaus did not. They had a very exciting time in the war and then it was over. Mm. And so she really wanted to leave. And she, she, you know, she'd gone back to live with her parents. So the three of them were there, Katia Thomas and Erica, and she decided she was the one who really needed to go. And they decided, he was at this point, he's 77 years old, that they would sell up the house in Pacific Palace, it's a beautiful house they built and they would go back to Germany, sorry go back to a German-speaking country which would be of course be Switzerland and they they found a house near Zurich and what's interesting is he wrote a comic novel about a chancer, about someone who couldn't be trusted, about <laughs> um, and um, called Felix Krull, and sort of pickpocket figure, one of those European you know figures from comedy who's at the edge of the parade Picking pockets and looking innocent. And um, he put some of his own life into that character. And then he died in Switzerland um, at the age of 80 in 1955. But um, certainly I think there was never any regret about leaving America. That, that, that he you know, what's also true is he, he didn't have a friend. It isn't as though he was he felt sorry for leaving his American friends. He didn't have any American friends, he didn't like a lot of the German exiles, they really were only involved with Germany and the fate of Germany. It isn't as though he was reading American writers or, I mean, he liked some movies and there's evidence of meeting eating a hot dog, but it's not as though America interested him in any way. He went back to Europe after his big, after his long exile, what 15 years or something unscathed by America and <laughs> continued as he'd
0: been before. He probably thought a hot dog was a German sausage, a Frankfurter. Um, another question. <laughs> uh, thank you for your wonderful book, which I loved, oh, that rich history and the beautiful story of relationships. I know you're not judging, not into judging Thomas Mann, but I wondered, I read it as a parent and really thinking about them as parents, and I wondered where you land um, in thinking about them as parents. Were they... Were they good parents? Um, How do you sort of evaluate that couple, which seemed to have such a strong boundary around themselves as a couple? um, How do you see them as parents?
1: Oh, um, they were appalling. And, uh, you know, I think we have to remember that being a father, when you start being a father in around 1905 or 1906, it's a different business. Than being a father, say after the Second World War, father in the 50s or 60s. Fathers were not e- expected to be sort of warm people, you know, in the, putting the children to bed at night and reading them a story. That, but, but he certainly wasn't that in any case. And particularly one of the children, Golo, the third child, remembers just how grumpy he got during the First World War. So he was having a terrible time with his own conscience. He was writing a book that was really intractable. And he took it out on the kids at the table, especially on Klaus, and he became the sort of strict father. I think, God, he was far too ironic and, in a way, good-humoured for what we might call nowadays proper parenting. So they produced these two wild children who, in their, in, you know, age 15 and 16, were already saying whatever they liked, sleeping with whomever they liked. And it didn't seem, you know, but in a way, each child was different. Some of them suffered more than others. I think Monica, one of the daughters, suffered quite a lot just from being ignored. Hmm. And um, Michael, the youngest, I think remained, you know, he he suffered greatly from depression later on. But, oh, it's not as though you could um, say this is a poster, these are poster parents, or it's a great example of... (laughs) early 19th century German, you know, how to create a family. I think you'd have to say this by any standards. It isn't that. But what I'm looking at is the sort of, not necessarily the comedy of that, although sometimes I'm interested in the comedy of that, mm. but in what that actually felt like on the day. Not that I'm, I'm making sweeping overall judgments, but I'm looking at it image by image, scene by scene, and I'm building up a picture of it. And I'm hoping the picture includes some sort of ambiguity that, you know, this was as much as he could do. And this was as much as his wife could do. It wasn't as though they were, they, were, they, were, they were bad or you can use words like that, but you certainly couldn't say they were good.
0: Column, you mentioned that uh, when Thomas Mann gave a speech in, I think, Portland, it was to 5,000 people. I wish you could see that there are a good couple of thousand of us here today under the trees on a beautiful day. It's such a shame that you can't see that. But there is another question for you, and it, we need this one to be brief, I'm afraid. It will be. You have quite a lot of dialogue in the, uh, the novel, and uh, you've spoken about the way in which you uh, develop the
1: dialogue, but much of it, to me, seemed to be... Uh, Extremely credible and fitting the uh, the context, and I was wondering whether you were able to draw from the diaries set phrases that he would put down that he had um, used, or uh, was it something uh, a lot less than that? Yeah, I know. I didn't find I found the diaries useful for a general tone of uncertainty and unease that I could give him in the novel that I got from the way the entries are in the diaries. With the dialogue, I had to take, I had to, I had to make sure that I was using nothing from any man's source, because of course his dialogue in his novels tends to be Germanic; his sentences tend to be longer, so that I, I had nothing to go on. And having nothing to go on is often a great help. Sometimes I had no source; I had no, I had no way of stopping me. So, no, the dialogue is completely mine, and you know, I was never sure about it because I, I felt that if it wasn't there. And if if the pages themselves were not interrupted constantly by the way the children or the arguments they were having, that that I would somehow lose something in the book of the way in which these people amused each other, the way in which, despite the fact that they were not a poster family, was a sense that when they were together, they sparkled, they glittered and they, they sort of mattered to each other. And I got that by the way in which they interrupted each other or they argued with each other. So that was a sort of an essential part of the book for me.
0: Colin, we've run out of time. There are there are more questions from the audience. There are more questions from me. I'm going to ask you one to which there is just... You, you only need to say one word in answer to this question. I believe that you might be writing or might have written a sequel to Brooklyn. Is that true?
1: I'm trying to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've written... Yeah, I have written the first two sections of it. So, I mean, and I have the rest in my head, so... OK, well, I've just go to, to a is...
0: roundabout... and and the rest will just (laughs) pop out. Um, The book is called The Magician, but you have been the magician today. Thank you so much for bringing your magic to us.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: And when you have have written that sequel to Brooklyn, come with the book, come and see us. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. That sense of a family curse gives the magician an almost mythic sense of tragedy. But one of the many remarkable aspects of the novel is how much of it is humorous in tone. And that is not something that I think any traditional biography of the family would have suggested. There are dozens of books about the man's as an intellectual force, but the sparkling, often funny dialogue adds another dimension to these complex personalities and Tobin makes a persuasive and plausible case for that element of enhancement. Thanks to Adelaide Writers Week for giving me the opportunity to talk to Colm Tobeen. Those who love his fiction will be pleased to hear he's currently writing a sequel to his novel, Brooklyn. Who knows if after that, another gay man in literature will manifest in his consciousness as the subject of a future biographical novel. Life Sentences is produced by Two Heads Media and Pipewolf Media. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown.